0: The Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. I am so excited to have Dave Ramsey back on the podcast today, and we have a personal conversation. We talk about some of the backstory, how he felt uh, as he moves through a succession process, what it's like to work with family and a whole lot more. I think you're going to absolutely love it. Hey, before we get started, I want to give a big shout out to not only our sponsors but to those of you who keep leaving ratings and reviews. Thanks for doing that on Apple Podcasts, also on Spotify. KH Coach 98. Thanks so much for sharing your feedback on Spotify. Glad you love the Richard Foster and Brenda Quinn episode. Hey, I read those. I appreciate them. And when you comment and you share, guess what? Word gets out there and it helps us do this time after time. If you're new, welcome. Uh, Really, really glad to have you. So this episode is brought to you by a free resource I have. It's a guide called Four Steps to Engage Your Church Around Giving and Generosity. You can click the link in the description of this episode or just go to engagegenerosity.com and you can pick it up there. And also by Compassion, you can book a Compassion alumni speaker completely free. To book a speaker at your church, visit compassion.com slash Well, Dave Ramsey is one of those people who needs no introduction. He's the founder and CEO of the Lampo Group, now Ramsey Solutions. And we talk about what happened when the Dave Ramsey show became the Ramsey show and what happened. Hey, succession is a big issue. You know, the average senior pastor of a church is in their 50s. CEOs and business owners are going through this all the time. This is an honest behind the scenes look at that and so much else about the emotional journey of leadership. Maybe a side of Dave that you don't get to see that often. Dave is an eight-time national best-selling author and host of The Ramsey Show, which is heard by more than 18 million listeners. Under Dave's leadership, Ramsey Solutions has become a recognized brand across the country that reflects his passion for using biblically-based common sense principles and education to help people take control of their money, business, leadership, and personal development. Well, hey, I am the first to understand that there's a lot of hesitancy and worry when you're talking about money at your church, right? I mean, it takes a lot of confidence to call the Dave Ramsey show and go, yeah, I got debt or whatever, but it takes a lot of confidence for you as a pastor to get up there and talk about the need to raise money at your church. It's awkward. And when you do talk about it, it's easy to have like two things you say and you say them over and over and over again. Well, I've got a free guide for you. It's called Four Steps to Engage Your Church Around Giving and Generosity. In it, you'll get four practical steps and shifts you can use starting as early as, well, this Sunday that don't feel repetitive, stale, or scare away unchurched people. And if you want to have better conversations around giving and raise a level of giving, uh, here's what you have to do. Click the link in the description of this episode or visit EngageGenerosity.com to get free and instant access. That's EngageGenerosity.com. Well, you've heard me talk about the impact that compassion experiences have had on churches. And one of those experiences can be having a compassion alumni speaker share his or her story with your church. So you know that a testimony is so powerful, right? Whether you have someone in your church, but I mean, if you're trying to really help your people have a heart for what's happening overseas, get a compassion alumni speaker. Often, these speakers are born into poverty. They join Compassion's program as kids. They come to know Christ. And then they grow up, and I've met a lot of them, to become doctors, pastors, teachers, and more. And they talk about the life-changing power that a local church and a caring sponsor has made in their lives. So depending on the need, the alumni can speak in person or through custom videos recorded for your church. So they're flexible, and if you want to learn more, Go to Compassion.com slash carry. It's completely free, and it'll open up your congregation's eyes to the impact each person can make on a child's life. Compassion.com slash carry. And now, my personal, vulnerable, and I think delightful conversation with Dave Ramsey. Dave, welcome back. Well, thank you. It's good to be with you again. Oh, it's good to hang out. We just missed each other. I was at uh, your headquarters Uh, maybe in the spring, and you were out of town, but it's nice to be able to connect now again.
1: Well, thank you, and thanks for speaking at our devotional. Our company went crazy when you were here. It was great. Thank you.
0: Well, you have an amazing team, and that that could be a subject for another day, but I want to drill down this time around with you, Dave, on the leadership aspect of what you do. I'd love to start because you talked about this a little bit last time. You talked about it publicly, but basically it was a radio show, right? It wasn't a company. It wasn't a thing. You didn't have dozens of employees, let alone a thousand employees. So I'd love to talk about that transition from radio show host struggling to make ends meet and advise other people on how not to go bankrupt. Like you went bankrupt, you know, back in the day to where you are now. What was the key moment where you thought, okay, I'm on to something here. This is more than a radio show.
1: Well, I mean, we really were doing one-on-one coaching, counseling, we would call it in those days. And uh, we had started uh, Financial Peace University. I'd written a little book. So I had a few little, I guess, products, so to speak, other than just radio. And then the radio opportunity came along and uh, gave us a megaphone to promote all of those things. Is really what it amounted to. Um, obviously we had the ability to minister to help people on the air live and, um, help the listeners by listening into a call, a discussion with another caller. But, um, but then also from a business perspective, leadership perspective, that led into publishing and the growth of a counseling ministry and, uh, a, a class series in those days called, uh, Life After Debt. And we later changed the name to Financial Peace University. And so, but yeah, we, uh. I mean, I've always been entrepreneurial. When Before we mm-hmm. went broke, I was running a, a real estate company, and I had five employees there, you know, and so yeah. I, I've led people or bossed people at that point and um, later on learned how to lead them. Um, but yeah, we quickly had, um, you know, five or 10 people on our team at, at, at this company mm-hmm. as we were doing radio and doing those different things, and, and so I'm starting again to try to figure out, okay, how's this people thing work? to get things done, to help other people through
0: people. So bossing people versus leading people. I've never heard it put that distinctly, but you're onto something. And I think there was a time where I was a boss of people. Maybe I still am on my bad days. What was your natural leadership style?
1: Well, I'm a, uh, on the DISC, I'm a high D. Yeah. And so, uh, high I if I'm on the stage or a microphone, but high D uh, in, in, a, in a business setting, meaning get stuff done, very task-driven, right. right. not real concerned about your feelings. And so, that truly is a boss. I mean, if, if you're an immature D, that, that puts you in a real position. And so, but I, I'm also a salesman, uh, By I grew up in a salesman's household, mom and dad were in the real estate business, and so I pretty quickly figured out it was much easier to get folks to do things by uh, persuading them to do them rather than um, telling them they had to do them at the point of a, a knife or a gun, so to speak, metaphorically. And so, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, you know, I mean, but what we always tell people in our trade leadership today, and this what I was doing in those days, is bosses push and leaders pull. Mm-hmm. And so, you can either stand behind the herd and crack the whip. <laughs> and you move at the speed of the lowest common denominator, or you can um, stand in front of the herd and say, guys, this is where we're going where there is no vision that people perish, here's the vision. Here's where we're going. And uh, if you want to go, you really need to get on the train. It's leaving now. This is a high-speed operation. We're going, and so keep up. If you can't keep up, then I guess you're not going with us and because we're going. And that's the persuasive pull side rather than the push and the crack the whip side, and then you move at the bell curve rate.
0: How, how do you see different generations responding to your leadership style as it's evolved. Because one thing I, I I notice about you, you know, when I when I watch you on your radio show or read your books, you are very directive, right? You're an Enneagram 8. You're very directive. You know oh, what you want. Boom, 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 yeah, boom. Ian
1: wrote 8 after meeting me. I mean, it was
0: like... <laughs> <laughs> there you go. He's like he,
1: he, Dave he's Ramsey. a friend, and he and I have laughed. He goes, I've never met anybody that's a quintessential 8 like you. Like, you check every stinking box. It's ridiculous.
0: <laughs> yeah. Do you notice a difference with because I, one thing that really hit me about your staff is how young they are. Like you got oh, a yeah. lot of like under thirty fives, under thirties. The vast majority
1: team. are millennials and Gen Z. You're
0: right. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. How are they responding to your style of leadership?
1: You know, uh again, persuasive is what they're looking for because they're okay. missional. Those two generations are more missional than any of the other generations I've ever tried to lead. Yeah. Uh, they they really don't have a high uh, they have a low tolerance for uh, transactional things uh, that they want to know why we're doing this uh, it's really good if I'm writing code and I'm a Gen Z that I know that this code might save someone's marriage it might cause them to meet Jesus it might it's not just are we going to in- decrease a friction point and increase our conversion rate in the store you know uh, and, and so th- they're writing code that has meaning. And so that that makes them very easy to lead because we're a very missional organization, and we're a very relational organization, and I am too. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, uh, but it also means this, and and I laugh with them, and they laugh with me because they know it's true. Uh, They're the easiest generation to hire uh, because there's only two kinds of millennials, awesome and sucks. I mean, they are the best on the planet. They'll charge the gates of hell with a water pistol. You don't have to, they have so much initiative. They're so smart. The All the digital landscape is native to them. They automatically think that way where I don't. I have to learn it to be able to try to grasp even what they're talking about. It's that it's, they can run so fast in the current marketplace if they actually care, the ones that care. But the ones that don't care, I mean, there's snowflakes in their mama's basement playing uh, in in a great act of irony, playing call of duty, and they have no call to any kind of duty, and and so they're useless. And, And... that there's really no middle ground. I mean, boomers, at least, we would lie to you and make you think we cared. <laughs> that, these guys won't lie to you. They just look at you and go, I'm useless. I'm here to take what I can take. You're the man. I'm here to stick it to you. And now you should hire me anyway. And no, I'm not going to hire you. So we hire the good ones, and they're amazing. And I love these two generations. And I have high respect for the good ones, so to speak. Uh, and, and they do require, though, that you put a mission in front of them. They do require that you are uh, authentic. They do require that you are uh, uh, consistent. No hypo- hypocrisy, um, you know. And so, if you say you're this, you need to be this on Monday and Sunday, and you know that kind of stuff. And so, th- they, I just, I think they're fabulous generations.
0: How do you define the mission? Of the Ramsey organization to your team when you're give me give me the elevator pitch.
1: Well, I mean the the mission statement is we provide biblically based common sense education and empowerment to every area of your life to transform it, and so and our vision is to do that with such scale that we impact this toxic culture and throw it back on its heels, and so um, you know we, we want to bring a biblical truth a sense of common sense to your money, to your mental health, to your career in, in such a way that it makes you wonder, oh, I need to check out this biblical stuff, this God thing. And I need to know, because it, it, it helped me. Uh, I, you know. And so we want to minister at such scale that it, it leaves a dent in this craziness that's out there in the world.
0: So I want to play with a bit of a different metaphor. You probably heard the saying, you know, my wife has had five husbands. All of them happen to be me. I'm in a long marriage. You're in a long marriage. I'm sure (laughs) you've been a different kind of husband at different stages. But that's true of leadership too, right? Dave, you've already hinted at that. You've been a different kind of boss. I want you to think back over three or four decades of leadership. And you can even go back your pre-incarnation to when you were running the real estate company. What have been some of the key pivot points in your growth as a leader?
1: You know, Covey uh, talked about in principle-centered leadership the idea of five levels of delegation. And the first level being, uh, you know, just go for level delegation. Go for this, go for that. Uh, Make a copy, get a cup of coffee, set the chair up. You know, uh, turn the turn the screen on, whatever it is, right? And that that's very directional, very simple task accomplished, easy to inspect what you expect. Um, but and we all had those jobs when we first started, most of us did. We started at a gopher level at some le- at some way. So I kind of think your leadership might follow that. The other end of the spectrum number level, if that's level five, one level five is the uh, the the idea that you can do a stewardship level delegation, which is you're now delegating a concept that automatically implies a bazillion details and a bazillion further delegations, meaning now you're delegating leadership. You're not just delegating tasks. And of course there's a spectrum between the gopher and the concept or the stewardship level. And so, you know, and I think our my leadership has probably followed somewhat of that. I mean, I can remember we, first thing is we just had to get the stuff done. You know, it's very, very, again, task oriented, get, get stuff done. Let's get stuff done. And then the next thing was I got to, get somebody to get somebody to get the stuff done because there was too many of them, you know? And so we got to about 40 people and we had four leaders. And that's a one to 10 ratio. That's max. I mean, one to five is preferable. And so we're starting to, okay, we have to have this third layer of leadership, me, the first layer, and then another layer. And learning how to lead those leaders like that was a real transformational thing. Uh, And somewhere along in there is when I started recognizing the importance of what we call C-suite now, uh, because again, we were we were hand to mouth. We're trying to make payroll Friday most of those early years. And so it's all about, did we get the, did we collect the receivable? Uh, you know, are we making a sale? Uh, and so I didn't really care whether somebody had a strategic thought or not, kill it and drag it home. I mean, come on, you got to get this thing done. And that was the early days. But then at some point you go, okay, we're wasting a lot of energy because we're, learning everything the hard way because we're not up above it looking down on it, meaning strategic thought versus tactical thought. And I actually had hired at that point of several people that had MBAs. I don't have an MBA. I don't have a graduate level degree. And um, so 100% of MBA programs do a good job of teaching strategic thought. And I'm a tactical by nature. I didn't have strategic thought. I Again, I was just kill it and drag it home. So these MBAs were like, Dave, we've got to have a strategy. And I'm like, that sounds like you don't want to work. I mean, so um, what do you mean you want to get in a room and develop a strategy? We should be doing something. And But then I, I became convinced over a period of time of doing these exercises with these guys. And they taught me, the team taught me strategic thought in that sense. I mean, I knew the intellectual knew the concept, but I mean, taught me to actually do it in the benefits of – uh, you don't have to beat your head against the wall. You could just walk around the corner, hello. And so if you get above it, you can see things. And so that was a big breakthrough. And we always laugh and say, um, you know, the MBAs taught me strategic thought and I taught them how to work. So it was a good trait. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> but the, uh, uh, you know, so that was, a, that was an evolution. The, adding the C-suite people the, and seeing their value is a strategic mindset. So putting in a CFO, uh, putting in uh, uh, an HR director, not uh, to do all the hiring and all the weird HR stuff, but instead just somebody that's paying attention to the team and making sure that we're doing good recruiting. I, I hired those both way too late. I should have added them uh, a year uh, earlier in, in the process, maybe two years earlier in the process, and now our of course, uh, our operating boards, half C-suite, half business unit leaders. And so we've still, now we've got a tremendous balance and, and outlook on that. But yeah, th- then you move on through the whole process and uh, n- now you're really leading from a visionary perspective, not as much hands-on when you start to get to a thousand folks and, you know, 300 of them are in some kind of leadership capacity. Now I've got, and, and then I've got to get, I've got a cascade all of this communication through and have methods to do that, that everyone is rowing the same boat still.
0: Failures often define us as people and as leaders. And, you know, it's your failure that you talk about all the time in your twenties when you went bankrupt that really launched who you are today. And it's easy to look at all the success of Ramsey and go, wow, but they don't have any struggles. When you look back over your time as Ramsey, was there a moment, like what was your hardest moment as the CEO? And, how did you, what was it? How did you navigate through it and what did it teach you? Mm.
1: You know, I, I don't know exactly how to put my hand on it, but uh, I can, our, our largest pain point for all of us, and I think it's true for most leaders, is our people. Mm. Uh, our people are our biggest, our team is our biggest blessing and our biggest problem point, most drama. Uh, more than, more than you know, some digital problem or conversion rates on the store, all that stuff, those are just, those are dry things we can work our way through. But when you love people, and we have a commitment here, our HR policy is, you know, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Treat other people like you want to be treated. That pretty much covers your business ethics issues. Treat, you know, if you got someone that's got cancer, what would you want if you had cancer? Well, I got a lady on the team right now that's uh been on our payroll for two and a half years and hasn't worked an hour. And uh she's trying to survive cancer. She's been here twelve years. So I, we don't shoot our wounded. I can mm-hmm. afford to keep her on the payroll. It's what I would want someone to do for my mom, my sister, my daughter if they were in that situation. Um now, and there'll be, will there be an end to that? Sure. Someday we'll do something. To, it's not in perpetuation, but that's one we've chosen to do, to, to extend that long, treat other people like you want to be treated. The, you do all of those kinds of things. And then on the other hand, you get some duber that leaves and decides to spend their entire next three years of their life writing negative things about you on some blog or, or trolling you. Mm-hmm. And this is someone who Uh, or we might have uh, taken care of their whole family when their kid was sick. We might have mowed their grass when they were in the hospital. I mean, this is the kind of stuff we do all the time, and then you turn around and get mistreated by them. So those pain points are definitely the the, the biggest struggle for me. And as I talk to entrepreneurs and leaders around America, I hear the same thing all the time. Uh, And it's the largest line item in your P&L. Your Your biggest investment is payroll from a mathematical Mm -hmm. standpoint. So it's a heart investment, a spiritual investment, a, a caring investment, a, a money investment, and it's the largest of all of those. And so the, it, it by definition, then sets you up for it to be your biggest pain point when it goes sideways. And when you've been loyal to someone and it's not that's not returned, uh, it hurts your feelings. I mean, I should be more grown up about it, you know?
0: No, but you know what? I was talking to a friend today who leads a large organization. You would know who it is, no names. But, you know, he's got an employee who's very upset with him. And, you know, I said, that's the kind of stuff that keeps you up at night. It is the kind of stuff that keeps you up at night. When I've had people leave our church... And, you know, if I did something bad, it's like, hey, I'm going to own this. I'm going to, yep, okay, you were right. I'm wrong. I'm sorry. Let's fix it. But part of leadership sometimes is being misunderstood. So if you're in a situation like that, how do you how do you move through that, Dave? Like, what's the internal journey like for you? Do you get mad? Do you just talk about it at home? What do you yeah, do? I mean, do? it, it, it uh,
1: truthfully, and again, I, I will uh, own the fact that it is a bit childish, but it hurts my feelings. It, it yeah. does. Uh, and at different levels, different... At different people, different situations, different things being said. But uh, for you to take good care of someone, and then they go out into the marketplace and lie about us, mm-hmm. um, and that harms our ability to help someone then because we lose, uh, you know, perception with that, that the amount of public they can get to, and uh, then they don't trust us because they think we're liars and we're hypocrites, and we're not. Uh, are we perfect? Oh, good Lord, no. I'm perfectly capable of owning that. I mean, my goodness gracious, have I messed up stuff? Oh, before I got home here today several times. I mean, my gosh, I mess up stuff all the time. But um, but I am trying, and I did take care of you when you were here. And then so, so I, I think the, um, I, I somebody wrote a line that said, I'm not responsible for the narrative in your head that you wrote about me. I can't, fix that. And so I've just got to put it in perspective and go, I, I was sitting with a pastor friend of mine the other day that's had the same thing happen to him. And he's there in the middle of a cancel situation. He's probably going to lose his position or he's probably going to quit because he doesn't want to deal with the way the elders have acted in this. And he didn't do anything wrong, but he had an, a former uh, team member go bananas and it goes into the media and on social media and it's created a crisis. And uh, so I told him, I said, you know, the problem is two years from now when all this is done, there will be two people on the planet that care about this and even remember it, you and your wife. That's it. No one else will even be thinking about it. You'll be thinking about it a lot because it's you. But the, but in terms of, you know, did it destroy your reputation? No, you've got 30 years of serving God, serving the community. People really know who you are. And even in the midst of this, they read the newspaper and they know that's a lie. That's just not true. That's not who that guy is, you know. And they read that stuff about me. They go, I know Dave better than that. That's not who he is. He's wild, but he ain't that, you know. In our little bitty brains, we go, we make it into a a mountain out of a mohill. And for perspective of time, you know, uh, even the things I'm thinking of while I'm talking about this, again, nobody cares. Hmm. Not even the person that did it. Hmm. Nobody even remembers it but me. And so then it's on me to go, I need to have some perspective and not let this thing own me, not let these people live rent-free in my head.
0: Yeah. One of the challenges I think a lot of leaders have, particularly as things scale, and you're looking at the stress you just talked about, which I'm pretty sure every single leader listening to this has got. I've got an equivalent in my life where I felt misunderstood. It doesn't matter. You'd be leading 20 people, 2,000. You've got Mm -hmm. that. Where Mm -hmm. somebody leaves mad, you're like, I did everything in my power. I've had friendships dissolve. And I went Mm to elders. And I'm like, okay, who's, what do I own of this? And they're like, no, we don't think it was you. And I'm like, ah, but it's still, those are still broken yep. today. They're yep. still broken today, Dave. And you know, you're right. Time. That was almost 20 years ago. I don't feel it like I felt it then, but it knocked me out for a year. Uh, but you've also had real success too. So I want to look at how you balance your time. Are you taking more time off now than you used to? Um, Did you ever reach a point of almost burnout? Do you think burnout's a myth? Like what? How have you approached that sort of work-life balance? Because I follow you and some of your family on Instagram and Ramsey Personalities. You know, you got a nice boat. You take people out. You barefoot water ski still. That kind of stuff. Like, what's your R and R like? And how has that changed over the years? Well, uh,
1: the burnout question. Uh, for me, is pretty simple. I, I've never gotten even close to being burned out because what we do has such meaning and it's such a calling. I do get tired. That's different than burnout. That's fair. Uh, when you push too hard and you too many days in a row and, okay, I got a 6 a.m. Fox hit and I'm signing books at 11 p.m. that night in a different city after a jet flight. Yeah, that'll get you after a while. And That's definitely a young man's game for sure. But, uh, but man, it... it you get fatigued, and you have to be careful with that because fatigue uh, make you do stupid things uh, that'll ruin the whole deal, and so you got to be real careful. But, uh, but I haven't gotten burnout, so I haven't had that mm. problem. And work-life balance has gotten better every single year as we've added more team members because there's most of the stuff, I don't do it.
0: <laughs> so, Wait, you're one of those um, MBA guys now. Yeah, <laughs> you know, other people do
1: the work now. So, uh, uh, you know, and it's gotten even worse <laughs> as I get older because, you know, I'll be 63 soon. I, I When I turned 60, I quit working Fridays. And um, uh, this last year, my son, who's been with us 11 years, moved into the president's role, yeah. Daniel. And so he and I have the pleasure for the next season of having two offices beside each other. And we're basically running this together as CEO and president, but he's doing a lot of the tactical stuff and stuff I might've done five years ago or 10 years ago. He's definitely got his hands on and loves doing it. So I've got that. And, and, uh, but yeah, uh, plenty of downtime. Uh, first time ever, uh, what, four years ago, I took three whole weeks off. I'd never taken three weeks in a row off. And, uh, we did that. We liked it so much, we did it again. And um, and now we take uh, a month and uh, stay in Cabo for a month at a time. And that's not that unusual. So um, I'll be down there for most of uh, November, as a matter of fact. So, uh, you know, but that's, you know... Uh, so, yeah, we're, and, and we're at the lake, and uh, we leave on Thursday night and go to the lake house. You mentioned the boats, and that's just south of here in about an hour. So, we're down there on the weekends. I'll we'll be down there this weekend and um, and teaching the kids to barefoot now, the grandkids. And um, so, all of that kind of stuff. So, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, I mean, we don't, even most of the people that work at Ramsey, I mean, 99% of us, uh, we're here at 7, we're gone by 5, 5.30, and so, if, I drive, if I'm walking through the office at 6 p.m. and there's somebody here, I want to know why. You need to go home. Um, you're not the Messiah. Jesus is. He's the only one that needs to be working at this hour. So uh, the rest of us, you know, you got a thousand other co- colleagues in the building that'll help you get this done. So we're, we're going to be okay. You don't have to, you know, you're not proving anything by being a workaholic at Ramsey. We don't do that. Yeah.
0: When you look back over the your time as CEO of the company, Were there particular, like, you know, we talked about a failure and the hardest part, but was there an inflection point, like one decision or a series of decisions that you made that really became inflection points for the scale and growth and impact of Ramsey? You know, I kept
1: waiting on that um, because we're in broadcast, we're in publishing spaces. So uh, we're on live event stages. So I kept waiting to be discovered and someone would come along and make it easy and do it all. Um, And I'm still waiting on that. It hasn't happened. And so every one of these dad-blame things is a dogfight. Every one of these has got dirt under our fingernails from scratching and clawing and hustling and grinding. And, and so occasionally we look back and we can see an inflection point of something mm-hmm. that broke through. Uh, you know, kind of a, you know, oh, there's this internet thing. Look at that. Who knew? You know? And um, we're actually probably seeing that right now. Uh, recent report came out about three days ago that we got a hold of in the industry that the first time in history right now on-demand podcast YouTube type things uh, on-demand broadcasting is at a has a higher listenership than regular broadcasting. Mm-hmm. So talk talk radio like we're in talk radio on 680 stations. We have a podcast and a YouTube of the same program, and we have more. On YouTube, more on podcast than we do on mainstream radio, and we're the second largest talk show in America, second only to Sean Hannity. So, um, but it, it's it's passed. So there's an inflection mm. point there that this this medium that you and I are doing right now has moved the needle. It's uh, it, it has shifted from me being in talk radio for 30 years. Now I'm a podcaster, and um, you know is what it amounts to. And so and I'm good with that. That's fine. I was going to really say, ca-
0: do you care? I, I,
1: no, I'm I'm medium agnostic. I just want the message out. So uh, how come you know we'll put it out in a in a hardback paper book? Uh, if you want it as an audio book, we'll put it out that way too. If you want it as an ebook, we'll put it out that way too. I mean, I don't care. We just got to get get it to you. That's the thing. So you can get your life changed. That's the point. So yeah, but that's an inflection point. I'll give you an old one that's fun. We were teaching Financial Peace University every night with an overhead projector and a bad suit in a hotel ballroom across the street from our offices. We'd have 300 people a night uh, sitting there. we break up. We rented all the the sleeping rooms on the first floor, flip the beds up against the wall, and break up into small groups on the whole first floor after I taught. So, I'd teach a lesson. We'd go into small groups. That's the model for Financial Peace University. Have a discussion after the lesson and accountability and encouragement, and that's always been the model. We were doing it very analog, and um, this guy working for me comes in. and He goes, hey, there's another there's a lady in the weight loss space that's put these videos out on this VHS tapes, and they're teaching them in like 3,000 churches. He goes, "We need to put this on VHS tape," and I went, "No, no, no! You can't change people's life on a screen. You got to be in their life. You got to be in there in person." I mean, the the humor won't work. The visceral connectivity that is required for heart change won't work. You won't. It won't work. And he kept on me and kept on me. We spent seven thousand two hundred forty-eight dollars putting those lessons on VHS, and got some of those small group la- leaders from those hotel rooms to beca- to take it to their church and start a class. And I walked in the back of the church, and they're wa- people are back to me. They didn't know I was in there. They're watching the tape. I cracked a joke, and they all laughed. I said, if this is you, raise your hand. And they all raised their hands to a video, like I could <laughs> see them. It was so distressing. I was so wrong. And uh, that version all the way up into DVDs and Financial Peace University was, has been taught now in 50,000 churches to over 10 million people because we made that one change. That was an inflection point that I didn't realize at the time, and I fought it. I was against it, but I tried it anyway because the guy, was he just wouldn't let up, and I was taking input from the team, right, the frontline people, and they're like, hey— you know we're, we're pretty much bottlenecked. You've done about all the overhead projectors you can do, dude. So we got to do something to get some scale. And all right, let's try it. It won't work, but we'll try it. It's only seven thousand dollars. If we waste it, it's okay. Man, was I wrong?
0: Wow, wow. So you're getting ready for succession, and it was interesting having uh, spoken to your staff at Staff Chapel earlier this year. Uh, you, literally, you could still smell the carpet in the event center. I think I was the second speaker there. You have sunk a lot of resources that God has given you into brand new offices, brand new event center, brand new broadcast location where you're in right now, right? With your Uh new studios and everything like that. And as I'm walking up there, I'm thinking... My goodness, as a a guy who I thought you were in your 60s, you affirm that today. Mm -hmm. You got your foot on the gas pedal, Dave. Like, it's not on the brake. So how are you thinking through succession, investment, next generation? What are your plans? Because this is something so many leaders are facing right now.
1: You know, we started studying that. I don't know exactly what happened, but I remember I was 48 years old. And it suddenly occurred to me, I'm going to die someday. I don't know why it hadn't occurred to me before, but it did. I suddenly had a mortality moment. And and I thought, hey, I teach stewardship for a living. To not have a succession plan is like the ultimate insult to the whole stewardship message. That's the worst stewardship you can do is build something that God owns, and you don't manage it well enough for it to survive you. That is so egocentric. It's so ridiculous. And yet almost everyone does it wrong. They don't do it well. Succession is very seldom done well. So I started studying family businesses and ministries, churches, that had done some kind of successful handoff. And I studied some dumpster fires, too, to try to figure out what the anti-principle is. And, uh, you know, we started going, okay, one principle is the more gradual, the higher the probability of success. Mm. This thing of the owner or the main guy or gal Grabs their heart, having a heart attack, falls back into the grave, and tosses the keys as they go. That one doesn't work. You know, figure it out after I'm dead. That one doesn't work. They almost never survive. Very low probability. So we started immediately as soon as we discovered that, thinking about, okay, how's this going to work? How's this going to work? What's it look like? What are the uh, the flow? What's the flow chart? What if something goes sideways? You know, what, what if that? Then what? You know, <clears throat> and started talking that through, and then we started studying family businesses. There's a good family business material out there on operating that, and, uh, and that leads you into some succession things. And so what we discovered was that it requires uh, for, the, for it to, the organization to survive, The especially a first-generation founder like me. We're, by nature, stubborn uh, control freaks. Hmm. That's how we were able to build it, but it also causes us to not let it go when we should and we kill the thing we love, and even the people we love by doing that, by, by holding on too tightly. I don't own this. God owns it. Okay, God, what do you want to do with your business? If I was hired as an outside CEO outside of this to come in and run this thing, the first thing a logical CEO that wasn't emotional would do was start to think about how to succeed, how to do succession. But, the, you know, but when it's your little baby you've been rocking, it is very difficult to let go. And so um, what we, another question, Correlation we found between success, uh, successful succession is the more noble the calling of the individual. I, we call it higher calling. Uh, if it's all about me and what I get out of it, you're not going to do a good succession plan. If the if the CEO is like mine, mine, mine. If I go in, the pastor says my church. First thing out of his mouth, well, you got that wrong, Pastor. It isn't yours. Okay. But but if they say that out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks, you're gonna have a hard transition with that guy. He's not gonna let go. My church. It's not your church. And so um, first thing I've got to is break that. So I said, All right, I is as, as difficult as it is, as much as the little boy Davy that lives inside of me doesn't want to do it. I've got to step up above this thing and do what's good for my family, what's good for the kingdom of God, what's good for these people, and that is to do a good succession plan, which requires me to systematically let go on a gradual, step-by-step, iterative process. And every time I let go of something else, we changed the show in 2020 from uh, the Dave Ramsey show to the Ramsey show. It was emotional on the air the day that we changed it, you know? What did you feel? What did you yeah, say? I mean, I, well, I, I felt as unimportant as I am. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I don't like that feeling. I want to be important. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. I'm a human being. I don't like that. <laughs> so, But the noble thing to do was to set the show up that has, you know, about 30 million people tuning in a week through its mm-hmm. various mediums for generational success, that it doesn't die when I do. Uh, I mean, Rush Limbaugh is a friend of mine, but it died when he died. Mm-hmm. It was awful. And he had a legacy. I mean, he's Elvis of talk radio. He invented it, and it died with him. He's already a distant memory, and it was just a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And so no no plan whatsoever. Even iHeart had no plan. They, they mm-hmm. were They were all in denial that he was ever going to die. And, and so, uh, and you know, that's, I'm gonna, I want to be the other end of that. Not because I'm mad at Rush or iHeart. They're all friends of mine. I, I love all of them. But, and I wish it hadn't been, but, and it's very difficult to do emotionally. And it's very difficult to find the talent to step into those shoes. Those are big old shadows, big old shoes.
0: Yep. So I know you're somebody who cares because last time we had a conversation here, you talked about what is your fuel for doing this radio show for 30 years. And it's, hey, somebody woke up today broke. They're going to call in. Might be my 10,000th rodeo, but it's their first and I want to be there for them. So, and we've seen glimpses of your heart, but I was talking with a friend of mine this week who just stepped out of the CEO role Mm -hmm. and handed the reins and he was in tears on the phone Mm -hmm. with me and I was in tears three years ago when I stepped down from the teaching team at our church. And I felt like you mentioned feeling like a little kid. Uh, The first Sunday when I was at our church where I wasn't a lead pastor, I had this little temper tantrum just to myself because I, I, my office was gone and I didn't know where to put my hat. And I'm like, come on, where do I put my coat? Like, this is not fair. Didn't I build this thing? And then, you know, God didn't smite me, Dad Dave, but he should have. I didn't build that thing. <laughs> no, he's smiling at us. <laughs> but I, I, I know he is. But like those emotions, what, what are some of the emotions yeah. you've gone through as you've started this journey? You know, I, I think that's it.
1: And um, it has helped me to incrementally. Let go. And so, uh, you know, this last stage or or this this current stage we're in where we just brought Daniel in as co-CEO. I didn't bring him in and step away. We're going to get to do it together for a while. And, um, I mean, there's a probability that he'll get tired of me. (laughs) (laughs) And he is your uh, son. The further further into this we get. And uh, he'll always honor me because he's a good, he's a sharp young man and he's he's smart that way. But um, our long-term plan, Uh, tactically is for me to stay on the air and uh, to continue to speak and maybe even do a little bit of writing uh, as long as I don't get in the way of the other book launches and that kind of stuff. But uh, I I would continue to do the Ramsey show as long as I make sense. Now, I did tell them if I don't make sense, take me off the air because I've got some friends that stayed on the air past when they made sense. (laughs) And so, yeah, you have the permission to take me off the air on that. But but, uh, I could do that well up into my 80s even. Uh, and that yeah. be my thing, and I come down to the place that I built, have a place to put my hat still, um, but not be necessarily. But I wouldn't be in the CEO, the operational roles inside the organization. I wouldn't be making those decisions anymore. I would be only talent, so to speak, in quotes, right? Not at that point, point. and that gives. So that's an incremental thing. It's not as sudden as I just don't have. I'm I'm gone. You know this chopping thing, and so uh, that's a luxury we have because of because I do do two things here. I'm the CEO and I'm talent. And so I can keep part of it and as long as I stay out of the way of the Ramsey personalities and let them step into the brand succession that we've built which is exactly what we did there. Uh, and I've got the owner transferred. We've already transferred the ownership. I only own 1% but I own the only voting stock. So... Oh. <laughs> hey, that was a good deal, Dave. Uh... So... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so far, you know, I'm still in control. But I can choose to turn that over whenever I want or at my death. It'll be turned over instantly. Uh, and uh, But I have never led e- even my family in this as grown people uh, except by persuasion anyway. So I'll never lose the ability to do that because I lo- won't lose their ear because I'm not going to lose credibility. So I could still sit down in a meeting and, and make an argument. I just won't be making it as the guy who owns the place at some point.
0: Well, you said it earlier. Those of us who start things are often control freaks, and we definitely have opinions. I'm sure it's happened already in in the, in the history of Ramsey, where people have made decisions, and you're like, "No, that's terrible." But now, you know, the C-suite is not just you anymore. Have you had a situation where the team that you appointed have selected has made a decision that you fundamentally disagree with? And then, what do you do with your opinion? Or have you imagined yourself in that role? I've, I've almost everybody who's gone through a succession, I've had this conversation with yeah. Dave, says that just takes incredible self control and restraint. And I'm just wondering if you faced that, and if so, how you handled it or how you would handle it.
1: I haven't faced it yet because I'm still yeah. in the leadership seat. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah. the there's not something happening without. My purview, you know, without me knowing it's going on. So there isn't somebody that went over and, and just went feral, went renegade and did something, then came back in. Well, that was dumb. You just screwed the whole thing up. No, that, that, we don't operate that way. We're more, sure. uh, we're more congruent than that. And so, but I do, you know, I've, we we have managed since 2012 with an operating board model, which is not, has nothing to do with the board of directors. These are the key players at the top of the leadership food chain that sit in a room every Monday and argue and fight and smile and laugh and tell jokes and uh, do life together and make all of the major decisions in this place, including setting a vision statement, including strategic offsites, including all of these things. We do all these things together. We love each other, we love each other's spouses, and we argue in there. It has happened in there. Uh, uh, I hold the Trump card because I'm the owner. I can go against the whole room. But if there's, you know, there's 14 people in there, in one setting, or executive council is there's eight people of that 14. In neither of those rooms, if, if uh, five or six or eight are really people I trust, I've worked with for a decade, they're intelligent, they love God, they love people, uh, and I trust their business acumen. If if the ma- vast majority of them are coming against me, I automatically assume I'm wrong. And so we go with a consensus model here, mm-hmm. uh, not, not because it's governmental, to do consensus. We don't take a little vote or something, but we argue it through to the point that if someone is in the minority in the room and we go, we're going to go forward, they go, okay, I trust you all more. I trust the eight of you more than I trust myself. Hmm. I'll go with y'all because we've we've fought battles before together and I was wrong. And by the way, we always laugh and say, and if you're wrong, I'll remind you of it later. You know I mean?
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's good. All right. So I'd like to talk about working with children. Um, This is surprisingly common. So in my little company with what I do with the podcast and other stuff, my wife and I are the owners, the shareholders. One of my sons works with us along with a couple of other people. Um, Churches, I run into so many churches where it's father-son or father-daughter succession. Um, And you have that. You've got three children. I think they're all involved in different levels with Ramsey Solutions. Rachel Cruz, obviously, uh, people would know her. She's a Ramsey personality. Uh, Daniel, fewer people would know, but co-CEO now. Very, I just spent a few minutes with him when I was there, but very quiet. Like, Mm -hmm. And I've heard doesn't really enjoy the microphone as much as other Ramseys. And then Denise has a different role in the company. What are you learning about dynamics of working with children in a company? Well
1: the the first thing we figured out as as they were moving towards possibly being part of this team was we said, "Hey, this is hard. Don't come unless God tells you to. I mean, just don't come. This is not don't come because you think this is going to be easier. It's going to be harder hmm. than than you working at, at at XYZ company, whatever. You could go do the same thing over there And, you know, it won't be nearly as emotional or dramatic. Don't come unless, and we had no pressure on them when they're growing up, no expectation when they're 10 years old. Daniel, someday you'll be the president. No, none of that. Daniel, someday you probably won't work here. You know, it was like, you know, you do whatever you want to do. What does God telling you you need to do? Then the second thing we did was, uh, you know, the proverb, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old he'll not depart from it. The old King James says in the way he is bent. Mm. So, what is this kid's wiring? And so, if you got a high uh, energy people person, I mean, Rachel. Rachel's the dancing poodle kid. I mean, she came out of the womb with a cigar and a bottle of champagne, ready to go. You know, I mean, <laughs> she, she. We knew she was going to be on stage somewhere. We just weren't sure it was here, right? Uh-huh. And so, um, she's wired to do this to do the to do the Ramsey personality role, uh, but she has zero ability on detail none hmm. and so it would drive her would drive this whole place crazy if she served on the budget committee she can't even spell it you know so no she can't be in there she she's one of the three owners she can go in there and sit she's welcome to but she has no desire to no acumen to none whatsoever Daniel's been an entrepreneur his whole life he's always loved business he's been a little business nerd is he just loves it he loves the business problem and solving them. For him, it's like building a Lego set. You know, he just like, we're in there arguing about a digital thing this morning. we got a digital product that's gone sideways and we're trying to fix it. And he's like, oh, this is so fun. And I'm like, it's not fun. It's stupid. And he's like, he loves it, you know. And so, uh, and Denise is the big hearted ministry kid. And so, she uh, was working for a ministry out of college, um, Nancy Alcorn's Mercy Ministries. And she was there several years. And we were opening up our Ramsey Family Foundation to do our philanthropy through, and I said, do you want to come help me learn how to build a foundation, be the director, learn how to do it? I don't know how to do it. You don't know how to do it, but we'll, we'll get with some people that do. We'll figure out best practices, and we'll go do it together. And she said, no, I don't think God's released me yet. And it was two more years, uh, and we were stumbling around with the foundation, and she said, okay, I think it's time. And she decided to come, uh, and boy, her big heart, I mean, she is incredible working with ministry. She can see... Straight through the gobbledygook that ministries put forward, sometimes, and she can see the the incredible work they're doing instantly, and has tears in her eyes almost every day. With mm. uh, it's just wonderful. So when plug them into how they're wired, and those that's the three Ramsey examples. Then the then once they come on board, uh, Henry Cloud taught me this. It's fabulous, and you're, you're a good friend of Henry's as well. Yeah, and um, he he said, uh, you know, wear a hat when you're at work that says boss or CEO. So I wear the CEO hat. Rachel Cruz is a Ramsey personality. So is George Campbell. So is Dr. John Deloney. Mm -hmm. I treat Rachel at work exactly like I treat them. I have the same expectations of her as I do of them. She treats me with the same respect that they treat me with, and she can argue with me just like they can argue with me, uh, but she can't use her teenage, eye-rolling, 13-year-old daughter voice on me at work. Because that's inappropriate. And I can't use my dad voice on her.
0: Right. Um, You can't go, Rachel? Yeah. In a way you never would to George.
1: Exactly. So I have Mm -hmm. to to keep that hat on and that stay in your lane, stay in your role. And so Daniel and I have a one-on-one as CEO to president, one-on-one meeting for accountability and projects we're working on very business itinerary we go and do it every single week just like I do with my other business unit leaders that are coming into my office to show me what's going on what's broken what we're working on same exact format uh, you know same l10 process everything is is we're running it all like that and, and then when we go home uh, they actually bought me a hat for the lake this is best papa ever right uh-huh. and so I'm Papa Dave. I've got the grandbabies on my lap or behind the boat, and I'm Papa Dave, and um, these are my kids and my grandkids and my wife, and uh, we laugh, and and, it, and we don't talk business. At the, that was at going the, to be my next at question. At the Thanksgiving you talk dinner business table. at the lake yeah. or... It's not allowed. It's <laughs> not allowed. The only time you can bring it up, you have to ask permission of the other people there.
0: We have had a very similar dynamic in my family. So, my son calls me Carrie at work, yep. and I Dave. told him... when. Yeah, yep. they call you Dave there. When he was coming over from accounting, he it was uh, in the accounting department at BDO. And then came four years ago, four and a half years ago. And I just threw it out on a whim. I'm like, hey, I kind of need a CFO. This thing's growing beyond my ability to manage the spreadsheets. Long story short, um, I said, you're going to have to work twice as hard. Mm -hmm. Because people are going to think you have this job because you're my son, because of your last name, and you're going to have to be twice as competent. once you have the respect, it'll be fine. And, I mean, he over-delivered, 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 and he has that. And he calls me Carrie at work, and we don't talk about this when we're together. And if we do, it's permission to ask a question about business. Interesting. And it's usually
1: permission of the other people that are sitting there having to listen to it.
0: Exactly. You know exactly.
1: they don't. They don't. You know don't the, brother, the, the son-in-law that doesn't work here doesn't want to hear it. You know. Well, you're know on the air.
0: You're on the air in a few minutes. So uh, I just want to point this last question to you. This has been such a rich conversation. I didn't get to most of my questions, which is a sign of a great conversation.
1: It means I talk too much, man. Yeah.
0: No, it means it means <laughs> it was really good. Anything else you want to share with leaders as they navigate the growth of their organizations, thinking about succession? Um, some of the challenges that we've talked about. Any final word to leaders? You
1: know, I, I kind of think I think leadership may be a little bit like money in that the biggest mistakes people make is that they're not intentional. Hmm. If you sit down hmm. and say, I'm going to do money on purpose, you would never do that thing. If you sit down <laughs> and said, I'm going to do leadership on purpose, you would never do that thing. So if leadership is, a, if good leadership, wise leadership, competent leadership is an act of in, a series of intentional acts, then succession is one of those. Mm. Uh, it's a, it's an intentional act of a good leader. Delegation is an intentional act of a good leader. Hiring and firing and, and creating an atmosphere of unity and a safe space, not in the woke sense, but in the sense of emotionally whole and safe. Uh, that, that's an act, an intentional act of a good leader. Too often, we get caught up in just getting the thing done, whether it's mm-hmm. Sunday morning service is the thing or the product delivery is the thing, the book launch is the thing. That's just the thing. the, the, the When you get to the end of your life, you're not going to remember the thing. You are going to have the richness of soul of the people you've led well if you're intentional with an incrementally constant intentionality, one little thing at a time, one little thing at a time. You win death by a thousand cuts, and I got to tell you, it's, it's the great joy of my life. I've had a blast. Hmm. hmm.
0: Any particular resource you want to direct us to right now? Obviously, the radio show, the podcast, your YouTube channel. Uh, where do you want people to go if they want to learn more, Dave?
1: If they want more on the leadership stuff, that's our Entree uh, Leadership brand. I yeah, and you're one.
0: back on that podcast now. Yeah, I'm, so I'm, you're I'm running that
1: it. podcast now. I'm doing taking calls from business leaders. That brand is aimed at businesses that are 5 to 250 people. Uh, Mm -hmm. we're not aiming at 5,000 people. I don't, I don't, I can help with that, but I've never led 5,000 people. So I can't tell you how to do it, but this I did today. I can do the other stuff today. And I did it two years ago and I did eight years ago. And, um, and, and I know the feelings and I know, so yeah, the podcast is fun. I've been doing it since the first of the year and uh, took it over. It's been been there for a long time, but I took it over and started taking calls and it's a blast. So yeah, just check out Entree Leadership. That's the brand and we've got events and books and coaching and we'll help you with your stuff if you've got a, a small operation like that.
0: Until next time, Dave, thank you so much. Appreciate you, my friend. Thanks for having me. Well, I really appreciate how Dave opened up. I mean, you know, he's still Dave. He's got lots of opinions, but my goodness, it's nice. You know, at the end of the day, we're all humans, right? We're all people. And we have feelings, too, when things change. And I'm really thankful that Dave went there, that he shared that with you, because you know what? I think one of the, the secret missions of this podcast is to let you know as a leader that you are not alone. You're not alone. When you go through the emotions, when you go through the ups and downs, when you struggle, when you're trying to figure stuff out, when you got a little bit of success, hey, you're not the only person. And we're going to bring you another conversation along a similar vein. Very vulnerable. Actually, we recorded this. Uh, I wasn't there. It was like a virtual thing. But in their bedroom, they did the interview. Judah and Chelsea Smith are going to talk about the personal side of leadership. I'll give you an excerpt on that in just a second. But first, if you have not yet got my free guide, four steps to engage your church around generosity and giving, get it now. Click the link in the description of this episode, or visit engagegenerosity.com. And then, wouldn't it be great? either by video or live and in person, completely free, to have a Compassion alumni speaker, a child who's now an adult raised in poverty, talk about the difference that a sponsorship made in their life. Go to Compassion.com slash C-A-R-E-Y, to learn more. So Judah and Chelsea Smith, we talk about the personal side of leadership, the ups and downs of marriage and doing ministry together, what it's like to lead on empty and navigating the world of celebrity. Here is an excerpt. I am literally first thing in the morning sitting on the toilet through a very thin door. And that's not always a quiet experience first thing in the morning, if you can read the two lines. And Judah is right outside the door. I was in the closet. (laughs) In the closet on a phone call. And I just was like, no, too much. I need... Pastor Rich Wilkerson Jr. (laughs) It's his fault. (laughs) I need to be able to go use the restroom in my own bathroom in peace. So I... I gave you a bit. Of so a she gives out. me the whole like like you know and so then I'm like, I'm sensitive and I'm like, my God, I'm just encouraging a fellow minister, you know And remember, we have a YouTube channel, so you can check that out. It's growing and uh, yeah, this was this was a really, really fun conversation. also coming up, Mike Todd, John Christ a series on AI where we talk to some of the leading experts in the world about AI. Louis Giglio's coming back, Philip Yancey, Heather McGowan, that was a great conversation, Dr. Karen Gordon, Grant and Cheyenne Skeldon, and a whole lot more. And have you yet signed up for my newsletter? It's delivered every Friday, and in it, I feature some of the most fascinating and curious content that I have found that week in the world of the internet. So if you'd like to start receiving On the Rise, over a hundred thousand leaders get it every Friday. Go to ontherisenewsletter.com. You can sign up completely free. Easy to join, easy to unsubscribe. But I think you'll find it really curious. I obviously I send something every week, like a book recommendation that I really vouch for, and also an article sort of in our field, right? Which is church leadership. But then some really fun stuff, too. Just bizarre stuff, interesting stuff, things you didn't know. A lot of them can become sermon illustrations. And if you're like me, uh, I mean, the algorithms tell you what you should like. This is non-algorithmic. I tell you what I think would be good for you. And it is stuff that I have found from a wide variety of sources. And it'll expand your horizon just a little bit. So go to ontherisenewsletter.com. You'll get my curated content about faith, culture, the future church, and a lot of fun stuff as well thank you so much. I really appreciate you listening. And I hope our time together today has helped you identify and break a growth barrier you're facing.